Uh, let's take a moment and just pause now and pray. God, thank you for um, yet another opportunity to enter into your word in community, uh, to worship in this way, uh, to receive from uh, you, Spirit, um, through music, uh, through communion, through conversation, and now through uh, the teaching and listening of your uh, two of your words. So we ask you to open our hearts, to refresh us, to challenge us where we need that, um, to really teach us, Spirit, uh, about who you are and about how you've created us to live in this world. We pray this through Christ. And all the people said, amen. Um, well, I'm going to read to start us out a few statements, and then I want to see if you can guess what they have in common, okay? First statement, this is funny. This is, <laughs> I, this sounded so amazing when I did this in my, so you're supposed you know, this is funny. Here's the second statement. I did what I could. Third statement, a quick haircut. Last statement, pardon me, sir, I did not do it on purpose. So this is funny. I did what I could. A quick haircut. Pardon me, sir. I did not do it on purpose. Does anybody know what those four statements have in common? If you do, then you are amazing. Because, Yeah, nobody. These are um, famous last words. So the first one's by Doc Holliday. You remember that movie, Tombstone? He's lying in his bed, looking at his feet, died at, these are 36 from TB, tuberculosis. I did what I could was from Edward Abbey. Uh, a quick haircut by this guy named Albert Anastasia. He was an American gangster in the 1930s. Um, he got shot in, I guess, a barber shop. So, And then the last one was by Marie Antoinette. And, and apparently, as she was being led to the guillotine, you know, Marie Antoinette, she accidentally stepped on the um, executioner's foot and then just told him in her own sense of humor, I didn't do it on purpose. But, of course, she didn't, right? So... <clears throat> Uh, and those are all compiled in this amazing book called Last Words, uh, fin- subtitled Final Words of More Than 3,500 Noteworthy People Throughout History by this guy named William Brahms. And they really provide this interesting into the, window into the lives of, and last moments of some people that many of whom we know, some of we I've never even heard of, all of whom had to face the one thing that all of us in the room will face someday. All of us will die. Um, and as I read through this book, these are, they're very pithy endings, like those I just read to you. And then there's ones that are even more poignant, like Emily Dickinson, who died at 55. She went, lapsed in and out of a coma, uh, consciousness for several days before her death. Her last words, I must go in for the fog is rising. Pretty, pretty poignant. Another one I read by a, a person named Nat Chi Mai is a Viet, was a Vietnamese protester during the Vietnam War. She was a pacifist, a student, and a martyr. She opposed the Vietnam War which led her to immolate herself in the courtyard of the um, Tum Gim Pagoda in Saigon. Um, and she, her last words, written in a note about why she did this, she said, I offer my body as a torch to dissipate the dark, to waken love among men, to give peace to Vietnam. Pretty powerful. So we love last words. Whether those are the last words spoken as someone walks off the stage, you know, in a, in a performance, or those words, the last moments of life, we often think, what will I say? on my deathbed. Um, we're fascinated by the vulnerability and the finality of these statements. And so we come to Romans 16 today, Paul's last words in Romans. And if, as far as last words go, if you're like me, if you read through Romans 16, you're kind of like, hmm, <laughs> these aren't words you're going to find in a book anywhere other than maybe in the Bible. Um, 
And I couldn't find a single sermon on Romans 16 out there to even reference and learn from, which was interesting. Uh, they're not Paul's most well-known words, by far. Especially when you include, if you look at the first 16 verses, this long list of names that Paul just adds there. It's very long-winded, meandering, kind of like Paul just needed an editor. Like, can we just get to the amen? And so here's the deal. If we, if we really press into the chapter, as I had to do this week, because I kind of wanted just to end this series prematurely and be like, I don't know, let's talk about, I don't know, John 2 or something. But um, I, if you understand why Paul wrote these particular words in the final moments of Romans, you're going to discover as I have this week, that they possess an incredible, uh, incredible meaning for our lives. His last words are very significant, both as they were written to the uh, people in Rome as well as to us this morning. So we're going to, our goal this morning is just going to be to explore a few implications of Romans 16 for our lives today, kind of unpack Paul's last words, okay? See how uh, those might shape us. And we're going to look at three things, how uh, Romans 16 has implications for our community, our life and community, our identity, uh, and then uh, the mission of God, or our mission as a church, okay? And, and we'll go from top to bottom, one to the end. And I won't teach every verse, don't worry. But first, community. This is verses one and two. And this, let's just begin where Paul begins. We didn't read this, so let me read it. This is what Paul says. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Senrei. That's why we didn't ask anybody to read that, because it's like a tongue twister. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of God's people to give her any help she may need from you, for she's been the benefactor of many people, including me. So basically, welcome Phoebe. And it's important to note that Phoebe is the letter carrier of Romans, um, which is a huge responsibility. It involves significant financial resource, risk, uh, leadership to be able to do this. If you just pause and think for a moment, her faithfulness and her courage. Paul shipwrecks multiple times. (laughs) And she carries this letter to Rome. She is the reason... The reason we have Romans in the Bible today. Just think about that. Phoebe. Blows your mind. And so Paul said, he describes her as a deacon, a diaconess, which means she's either just a servant in that community uh, where she came from. That's a general way of looking at it. Or a deacon within the church where she comes from. Uh, Her church is in Corinth where Paul was at uh, in this time. Uh, But more significant than a deacon, he describes her as a patron, a a prostasis is the Greek word. In some translations, that word is translated as a helper, which is a terrible way to put it. It's a, actually a benefactor. So that's why we have, like the NIV says, the benefactor. Um, some people say patron. So Phoebe is Paul's benefactor, as well as a uh, benefactor of many others in the Corinthian community where, where she's from. And this is also hugely significant because in the Greco-Roman world of, of, their, of their day, everything was about the patronage or benefactor system. In the ancient world... Uh, they were, they were such a vital part of social relationships, benefaction or patronage. And by the way, there's a lot of cultures that are still this way. So what was the patronage system really about, if you think about it? So let me just give you the example. If I'm a person of means, like Phoebe, and one of you comes to me, and you say, hey, I'm in trouble, can you help me? Uh, I need a place to stay for a week or two. I'm in between places, I'm traveling, whatever. I need a loan, a smart savvy person like me, <laughs> a connected person, a patron is going to be really happy to help you and give a loan or offer space or provide for needs as long as that's a strategic move for me. In other words, the patron, and keep in mind, I'm just describing the general cultural expectation. I'm not describing Phoebe. This isn't why Phoebe did this for Paul or maybe why Paul's asking her, them to do it for her. The patron would say, okay, this is a person who knows this. 
who, and this, they know this person, they're, they're connected in this way, they can open these doors for me, they have this kind of a skill that I might need later, I want them to owe me a favor, so I'm going to do this for them this time, so in the future, they'll do something for me next time. Does this make sense to you? That's patronage. And that's how that you work your world out. You give a loan, you help people, as long as they were strategic for you. Uh, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> uh, which one of you is that? I see this. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was one of you guys. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you had your faces for blushing. So, you know, um, are we good? You're blushing now. So anyway, Paul sends this patron named Phoebe to Rome to this really hodgepodge group of, of new Christians, some of whom were former slaves, others who were working class cobblers. We're going to talk about them in a moment. And he says to them, welcome Phoebe in a manner worthy of the saints. Help her in any way she might need from you. Well, I mean, what could she possibly need? She's a patron, right? And you see what Paul's saying is that it, what he's doing is he's actually blowing up this old ancient Near Eastern patronage system by inviting people who would not otherwise serve as patrons. They're not connected. They're not uh, financial means. They wouldn't really be benefactors. He's blowing the system up completely. He's just as Jesus blew it up before him. Listen to this. Uh, you might remember the story of the Last Supper. We're going to celebrate communion this morning, so kind of a timely time to re- refer to this. Luke 22, Jesus has just taken the bread, just taken the cup, and he's poured it out. He's revealed that this, is the mean, this will be the means for which they'll understand salvation. And he's spoken these powerful words that we come to today and celebrate and remember. And, uh, and this immediately after that in Luke 22, there's an argument. They're around a table, and there's the 12 disciples. And there's an argument amongst them about what? Who's, who's the greatest? Who's, the, who's, the be- who's Jesus' favorite disciple, Right? It's got to be me, right? And like I've, come to, I've been to every one of his lectures. I've been with him every day. I've never skipped a Sunday. You know, I've memorized my entire Bible. Who's he going to pass the torch of leadership to? It's got to be me, right? I'm the most charismatic. Who's going to be his successor? If he's going to die, certainly it's me, right? And, and you remember what Jesus said to them? <laughs> he's like, really, guys? Well, actually, he said this. The kings in Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, patrons. There's that word. But you're not to be like that, he says. Instead, the greatest amongst you will be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. So he inserts this idea of servant leadership. And he says, when the cross comes into your life, when you understand my life, death, and resurrection, when you really receive my broken body, my shed blood into you, and understand their their significance for you, that absolutely normal way of relating to other people— uh, this instinctive way that we're in, in our fallenness, where we choose people because of what they can do for us, where they can get us, the doors they can open for us, that way of relating will evaporate. It will go away. That way of saying in your heart, I help people, I relate to people, but only those who help me. Only, I only relate to people, I hang out with people because there's a payoff for me, right? Return on investment. That very natural way of, and traditional way of thinking, modern way of thinking, is gone when Christ enters your life. There's no space for it. Jesus says, it will not be so with you. Other people help and relate to those with expectation of payoff. I want you to love people without expectation or calculation whatsoever. I want you to love indiscriminately. I want you to love people for their sake. Not not your sake, for love's sake, for God's sake, as a consequence of the cross of Christ, whether there's payoff for you or not. It doesn't matter. You just love. And so Jesus completely upends this way of thinking about influence and patronage 
blows it up, and Paul, as a follower of Christ, walking in his footsteps, forming and shaping a community, a Christian community like ours, he does the exact same thing. He says to this church, like I said, many of whom were presumably not socially connected like Phoebe was, uh, who will not be able to return to her what she gives to them. She has way more influence than they. She is uh, very wealthy if she can travel on her own to Rome from Corinth. She has money, means. She's due honor in that culture. They're not going to be able to return that to her. Paul's saying, yeah, that's the point. A new kind of community. A community that's not based on status, influence, image, importance. How will this help me, this exchange? Instead, a community is about something much different, completely different. And Jesus describes that as radical servanthood. Be like the servant. We're being called to enter into relationships, walk into rooms, proclaim the gospel as servants. Um, some translations say as slaves. So we don't think of ourselves. We don't think of our position. We don't think of our influence. We, we're just utterly counterculturally other-focused. We find ways to bless, to serve, to help. We're invited to be like that. Not, here I am, how can you help me? But there you are. How can I help you? That's our, that's our attitude. That's supposed to be our attitude. Um, and so as we move to the second point here, I want to, as we consider what that might look like, how would that look inside of a church? Um, I think it's actually important to remember that servanthood, servant leadership is, is as much a practice as it is an attitude of the heart. I've described the attitude of servanthood. Like indeed this, you, you walk into a room, you say, how can I help? You don't, I literally say that, but you have that posture. That's an attitude, but it's also a practice. Uh, so in John 13, John's version of the Last Supper, if you read it sometimes, same story as Luke 22. Jesus is getting ready to serve the meal. Speak these powerful words that are going to frame their life together. And what does he do? Only in John 13, before the meal starts, he kneels down in front of each of them with a basin and a towel. And he, before they begin the meal, he washes each of their feet. <clears throat> kneels before them tenderly and humbly, and he tends to their physical need. And he, and he assumes the role of a servant in that meal. Only the slave of the house would do that. Not the master, not the host. He takes on the role of the servant in this meal. Um, and he embodies the attitude of servanthood, but he also, he teaches servanthood by practicing it. Do you see this? He doesn't just talk about it. He actually practices it. So how would that look for us? I mean, like if you stand actually in a posture of servant leadership with other people, it might look like washing people's feet. <laughs> You might try that. Um, they might be a little surprised. Um, and I know we've, we do that at times. It's appropriate. But more than likely, here's what I would suggest. Inasmuch as foot washing involves cleansing, that's the key, uh, it, it will involve something like that in your everyday relationships. So these disciples come in from the roads of their daily living. Their feet are caked with dirt. You know this. They're working men and women. They're just regular people like you, average they walk places rather than drive. They don't take Ubers. They take the bus. You know, you, you know what I'm saying. They're tired. They're tired from the day. They're tired from the journey. They're just tired. You can just presume they're tired, just like us. And so servanthood in relationship to those in your life who are like that is probably going to involve coming alongside tired people who are coming off the road where there is weariness, where there is weariness, where you identify in a relationship areas of exhaustion and fatigue, where you see a tired person you have a chance to serve. That's what you do. Could be your spouse, could be your kids, could be a neighbor, could be somebody who you see every day on the side of the freeway. Uh, you know that you're just tired. They need somebody to come alongside them and just love them in a practical, meaningful way. It might be somebody you know that's heavy with shame. Uh, shame is like dirt on your feet. 
where you are told your whole life something's wrong with you, you're inadequate, you don't measure up. A lot of us deal with that. Um, You can come in, something's impeding somebody's ability to really be in communion with God and community with others, and you can help wash that off with a word of grace or a word of truth. We wash feet, we cleanse lives, mind, body, and soul in almost every relationship in our life. We have that opportunity. We all have that opportunity. So I want to invite you to think as we transition now, who's coming into your life? The Phoebes. (laughs) Are there any Phoebes? Weary travelers. She's probably weary. A messenger of God, a disciple, a coworker, a colleague, a neighbor, a family member, another Christ follower whose feet just, you know, like, oh man, they're caked (laughs) with dirt. And they're weary from what the road behind them looked like. They're weary about the road ahead. And all you're being invited, called to do, the only thing you have to do is welcome them in a manner worthy of the saints, of the people of God. Just bend down in a humble posture, be other-focused, and say, how can I help? What can I give to you? That's foot washing. Is there someone? Just think for a moment of a name. You have a name. Everybody has somebody. Perhaps now is the time to begin asking the Lord for a way to serve them, like for God to ignite your heart with, with imagination for that person, just to serve them, okay? So that's the first thing, the implication of these last words for community. Pretty, pretty amazing, right? My wife told me, wow, it's amazing you got that out of those two verses, so hopefully it's not too much of a stretch. Here's the implications for identity, verses 3 to 16. This is essentially, we didn't read this because it's just essentially a long list of greetings, so go ahead and read it as I'm talking. Um, these are just all Roman citizens, as Paul's saying, greet them, greet them, greet them. It's notable, though, if you read this, that Romans uh, 16, 3 to 16, contains more personal greetings than all of Paul's letters combined. All of them combined, right here, longest list of greetings. 28 people are named. Uh, Some are part of groups, households, house churches. So if you add that up, an average house church is about 50 people. About two to 300 people are named here. That's basically the Christian community in Rome. We'll talk about that in a sec. Paul, and, and the reason he names so many people is he, uh, there's a few reasons, but one of them is he wants to demonstrate that he has many friends and allies in Rome. Um, he wants to get to Rome so he can get to Spain, and it's a way of building a bridge. Say, hey, you know, I know you, I know you, I know you. It's a way of kind of, you know, it's kind of a support letter in some ways. But the list, for other reasons, is very impressive. It's very diverse. It includes a number of people who have slave names, uh, emancipated slaves, eight women, 18 men. That's a very significant detail we'll come to. Majority of Gentiles, but a few that are uh, Paul names as Jewish Christians, converts to Christianity. As well as, this is really interesting, a couple of people who are associated with prominent households in the Roman Empire, Aristobulus and Narcissus, both of if you read literature, knew the emperor personally. So these would be the equivalent of what you'd call today a celebrity Christian. These are very well-known people, all of which leads to a few observations I want to make with you. We'll make three real quick. The first has to do with the actual names. So he lists 28 names, and there's a lot of other people he doesn't name, but you, you see a list of names, and I've talked about this before, and you probably just start to nod off, or you just read right past it. You're like, where's the good stuff, right? Where's that memorable verse? It's not here. There's no nuggets I can learn from here, right? Uh, Certainly, I can't learn anything here. There's got to be some sort of tweetable verse later, right? I just got to get to that where I can learn about God and the theology that God's trying to teach me, something significant, right? I've done that. So you read right past it. But listen to this. When it comes to the world of the Bible, Old and New Testament, 
there are no insignificant lists of names because names were never just labels. You'd never picked a name if you're giving a name to your kid out of a book (laughs) because you liked the sound of it or it was the most in vogue thing that year. Nor were people called out in a list like this, like we do on Facebook or Instagram, like haphazardly and whimsically. Like, I'm going to tag you, you, and you, and you because I want everybody to see it. Like, we don't do that. Names and lists of names provided this sort of sacred source of meaning in that day. So he included names for reasons. In other words, the, the content of a name, at least in the terms of the world of the Bible, it showed you your purpose. Uh, this is why Jesus renames Peter. You have a purpose. You're going to build the church. You're the rock. That's why he chooses Petros. Uh, it's, it, it told you who you really are, what you're to live for, what you're here to do. Okay? So names were a profound source of identity. So here's a few of them from the list. Phoebe. Her name means luminous, brilliant light, a source of light to this community. I mean, that's, that's good. Priscilla, she's an apostle, means wise woman. <laughs> I think you'd need to be wise if you're an apostle. Aristobulus, best counselor. I don't know what he did for a living, if he was a counselor or not. Hermes, messenger. Philologos, guess what that means? Fond of words. <laughs> um, Petrobas, father's life. I love that one, father's life. So, so these lists, this list had, and I looked through them all, they all have something different, rich meaning. I got one of these name cards. Any of you get one of those, like a bookmark? or I, Mine was like a little, looked like a playing card when you were a kid. had your name on it and some sort of, it, was like, it had like cats on it and rainbows. Um, some of you got a mug. Um, to this day, I remember it was on my card. I mean, I can look it up. It's on, online. It's there. Uh, at least on mine, it said, Jack, colon, God is gracious, redeemed to speak the truth. Yeah, that was on my card. And I got that card. And when I got it, I was pretty young. I think I got it from one of my mom's sisters and aunt for Easter. I mean, my mom's Catholic family, so we didn't give <laughs> Easter bunny eggs and stuff. We got things like that. And so um, it was like reading a fortune cookie when I got it. You know, it's just sort of like, I have no idea what this is. I tucked it in this huge Bible that they gave me when I was a kid, and yeah, there it sits. I had no idea what that card meant then, but as I reflect on it now, and I don't know if God was trying to whisper something to me in that moment and call me forth, but who knows? It's pretty amazing to think that God has been gracious to me, and he's redeemed me to speak the truth. That's pretty amazing. I don't know what your names mean, but there's something within uh, understanding your name, but not just your name, your identity, uh, that reveals what you're here for. Um, and this is what I think a little bit of what Paul's up to here. He's saying that you have a name, all of you do, but you're persons. You're not just uh, kind of generic kind of human beings. You have an identity. And this community is personal, and there's stories in Rome. And you're supposed to greet these people who've been uh, faithful and labored on behalf of God, who are filled with promise and possibility. Each of them have done something different. Greet them, remind them they have value. Uh, each of them has significance, they have purpose, and, and invite them to live into that. Live into your potential. Live into your promise. Live into the man or the woman that you were created to be. Live up to that. Paul's reminding them that though they're a small group of Christians, like 300 in the largest city in the world, think of this at that time, that would be like our church in Seattle. If we were the only church in Seattle, I mean, think of the significance of me as a leader here being able to say, hey, live into your purpose. You have purpose. We have, a, we have a purpose here to affect this city for the gospel. Sometimes we get a little 
complacent because, oh, it's not our job, right? And think of what Paul's doing here. He's saying, hey, this community has been called forth, and each of you within this community have something that God's uh, created you for. And, and, and the discovery of that for each of us in the room, at its core, it's going to take your whole life. You don't just go now, buy the bookmark, because you can, and then look at it and go, that's me. You know, because sometimes it works, and sometimes you're kind of like, nope. But, but you're called, I think, over time to slowly, incrementally listen to God, listen to the Spirit. Uh, other people will do this through the Spirit, speaking to your life. This is who you are. These are your gifts. Write that down. This is God's plan for you. Let, let people, uh, God, through people, call that into, into being. God says there's something important about you, each of you in the room. I want you to know. And, uh, and when you realize that, that's going to empower you for greatness. So that's the first thing. We're named by God. Here's the second thing. There's a ton of diversity in this list. Um, So we don't know about all the lives of the 28 people uh, named here, but we do know these things. Like I said, there's Jewish and Gentile converts. So this church we would describe today as very ethnically and racially diverse. Um, There's also incredible class diversity. So there's socially connected, Aristobulus, and those that are uh, freed slaves, not socially connected. You could call them potentially outcasts in society. And then not to be missed, you have a very, uh, really incredible diversity of gender, which we're not gonna, we don't think is that important. Like, we have men and women in the room. Okay, that's just the way it is. But in that day, especially the way Paul calls people out as leaders, women who are leaders, massive shift in the Greco-Roman world. So eight uh, or nine of the 28 people named are women. Paul singles out many of them as working very hard, indeed, They're active, influential in the ongoing ministry and mission of this church. Phoebe carries the letter to Rome. Priscilla, head of her house church. That would be, in other words, senior pastor. (laughs) Try that on. Junia uh, is actually, Paul says, an apostle who's in Christ before me. So here's what this means, potentially. Not, there's arguments over Junia. Ugh, so many arguments. But it raises this question. She's an apostle before Paul, which potentially means she met Jesus. She was around Jesus with the 12. Just a radical notion of authority amongst women in this community, which, by the way, as I've read the commentaries on this passage, if there's any lingering doubt amongst any of us around should women be in leadership at the highest levels in our churches, in our communities, Romans 16 should settle it. If you have questions, let's talk. But really, Back then, I don't know why we're waiting. Christianity and the Bible has no place for misogyny or chauvinism, nor does it have any place for classism, nor does it have any place for racism. I mean, any of the isms that have marked uh, society and sadly the church, I just, there's absolutely no room inside of our community for any of that. The church is called to be a community in which every person, no matter their age, their gender, their ethnicity, their social standing, is able to help and contribute and discover their gifts and their calling. And then use those. And, and we fan those into flame no matter who they are. That's, that's just the point here. As one commentator put it, just really, uh, really precisely, this motley list is evidence of a veritable social revolution. Actually, another commentator, John Stott, puts it this way. Heterogeneity is the essence of the church. Since it's the one and only community in the world in which Christ has broken down all dividing walls, the vision we've been given, he says, of the church triumphant is a company drawn, he quotes Revelation, every tribe, tongue, and nation singing God's praise. So we must declare that the home, listen to this, this is his words, 
A ho- the homogeneous church is a defective church. Ouch. <laughs> Which must penitently and perseveringly work toward heterogeneity, diversity, in every way, shape, and form. It's about becoming more and more aware of the incredible richness of life in that ecosystem within our community, the rich variety of persons here. Um, not that we rest on our laurels. We have so far to go in realizing that as a church, as a local church. But we, we can understand where we are today. And, and as you look around the room, that begins by noticing and connecting with the lives of those people that God has put us in community with. Um, and as we pay attention and hear stories from people, and we, we get to experience gratitude and appreciation for the differences that we share. Not the similarities, the differences. This means being mindful when we're together on Sundays. Here's an application for you of who you're connecting with. We all gravitate toward those we know. That's just how we are. And often we connect with those who are in our social circle or those in a particular station of life. You have kids, I have kids. We just connect. Uh, What if we were to connect with those we may not know yet or we suspect may come from a very different place in life? Their hair is a little different color, you know, (laughs) gray, Uh, uh, less hair. I I mean, I don't want to say anything more. I won't say anything more. I'm going to get myself in trouble. This is also why serving in children's ministry is so important. Not because we just need more teachers, but because you have an opportunity there to connect with potentially the person most unlike you in this church. Try that on. If you're not a parent, you'll, I mean, if you're a parent, you know what I mean. If you're not a parent, you'll go find out. So this is also why worshiping simultaneously with Lake City Prez is so significant. We have this opportunity to simply walk down a hallway and share coffee and learn and, and engage people radically different than we are, theologically, generationally. There are just so many ways for us to discover this difference. And, and then as we learn that, uh, be filled with gratitude. There's so much opportunity here for us. So that's the second thing. Uh, there's a very rich diversity of people, persons in God's community. Might we be that? So here's the third thing, and we'll, we'll close down. Paul offers these words for those who need it. Uh, so it's, there's names, there's very diverse names, and there's a list. This is not a random list of names. Uh, he seems to know exactly who needs a word of encouragement the most. And, and, and if anyone needed it more, <laughs> it's the Christians in Rome. They're outnumbered. Like I said, there's a few hundred in this huge city. And, and so think of how you'd feel. You know, there's opportunity, but if you're like the only church in the city, and, and not just that, this feeling that your, your faith, your religion, isn't just a train ticket to heaven and, or you're following some guru, but that you've been called to follow a new king and, and live within a new kingdom, and now the king, the emperor, wants to kill you? <laughs> that might make you feel a little uh, queasy or a little nervous. So being faithful in Rome would not have been an easy task at all. There's no room for complacency. You're just all, every day, just worried that am I going to get picked up and taken to jail and killed? So being faithful... Then, and just like today, was not, is not easy. So when you see people who are weary of following Christ because they're committed to the truth of Christ, here's the application for you. God's heart for those furthest on the margins, um, when people have caught this vision for their life, when people have, have paid a price for following Christ, when you find those kinds of people, your calling, our calling, is to affirm and encourage them. Just affirm and encourage them. So the gospel t- calls us to a ministry of encouragement. And I've never really thought of that. You know, Paul had Barnabas and they split up. Never really thought, well, hey, that's just Barnabas. But how vital Barnabas, who, which means encourager, was to the formation of the church and how vital 
the encouragers are to our community. Uh, see, Paul, and notice Paul doesn't write just a bunch of generic Hallmark greetings either. Like, if you read these greetings, they're very precise. Um, they're, they're coming from somebody who's paid attention uh, and is able to speak specifically in ways that would to lift these people up where they're most discouraged. Have you ever felt discouraged? <laughs> Had a, just a time of discouragement um, and then met, been met at just the right moment in just the right way with a word of encouragement. Any of you? Uh, I was thinking about this late last night. I'm digging around. We have some old file boxes. Files are these things that you have paper in and you see these. And so... I have a folder in an old file box that I haven't touched for years now called Encouragements. And I went to that folder late last night and uh, opened it, and I just sat in our little storage room and read these and, and kind of wept. Because um, I've kept these, because, you know, like many of you in your working life, uh, it's not easy being a pastor. And sometimes you feel like, man, I just want to quit. This isn't working. I'm, I'm terrible at what I do. And so I'll get these notes. I got one from a student that I mentored in my first church after seminary. I was the youth pastor of this church. And, you know, we take these mission trips to Mexico, and he sent me an, a letter. He sent it off to seminary. He's now a pastor in, like, Longview. And he said it was this, this drive in Mexico to pick up some lumber, to build a house, in which he realized he, he knew he was supposed to be a pastor. And he wanted to relate that to me. He said, you spoke truth. I was like, I don't even remember the conversation. He took time to write that down and mail it. There was one from this kid who I, uh, named David who I had in a summer cabin at a camp in, in Missouri one summer. And I discovered his parents had been divorced. And we had Father's Day. And so I, I gave him a card for Father's Day that day. And a year later, he sent me a Father's Day card in the mail, and I kept it. Um, and I wasn't a father yet. This is way before I was married. And he said, man, I was going through such discouragement that day. And, I, and you play this fatherly role in my life. And you, he said in quotes, you're going to be a great father someday. He encouraged me, and I, I, I hope I am. There was one in particular that I read, and I just I pulled out and I kept in my little notebook for this week from this guy named Jack, who was in my last church in Pennsylvania, and he's since died. Oh, he's just a great guy. And he recounted in this letter the care that I offered to him. I was really out of my element because this church was mostly people retired and much older than I am. And here I am, one of their pastors. And it's like, how do I relate? to? I mean, it'd be like pastoring a very large version of our church down the hall. And how do I relate to this community? I don't, we don't do anything in common. I don't even understand what it means to come from the generation of the boomers. I mean, literally. Um, and his wife died really soon after I got there. Of, of cancer, and they had been married 50 years. And our senior pastor was out of town, so I was the guy. I barely knew him, went to his house, sat on his back porch, watched the sunset, listened to the birds as they returned to their nests. And he wrote me this note. <laughs> this is just before he died, about a year ago. He said, uh, that time had forever changed me. And I just read this note, and I was like, wow, so encouraging. When you doubt that you're doing the right thing, you go, oh, yeah. Maybe I'm okay at this. Maybe this is the right thing for me. Maybe I'm supposed to be doing this. Um, And in a roundabout way, I believe that's what Paul's doing here for these people. Just naming the specific ways he's seen God at work in their lives or them at work for God. Uh, He's putting a spotlight on them and, and giving them the hope they need at just the right moment. And so here's a question. What if we shifted our paradigm 
and began encouraging people in our, in our lives, in our church, in our city, it, it's so easy to critique. Seattle is such a sarcastic city, and we, we kind of take pride in that, right? Like we have raw humor. <laughs> it's so easy to complain and be down and, and, and like, oh, nothing's ever going to change. Look at the politics. Look at our leaders. That's just the way they are. It's never going to, it's just broken. We can find fault in anyone with anything so quickly, and yet we fail to realize the incredible opportunity we have as followers of Christ to inject a room, inject a conversation, inject a life with words of hope simply by encouraging. We just forget that we have the, the power to do that. Some of us in the room need to awaken to that power. I know I'm one of those people. I, I do not count myself as a natural-born encourager. Like Barnabas, not me. Um, I, need, I, I don't really, I don't think, I don't think people are as appreciative as my words as they probably are, my presence. I, I have my head in the sand most of the times. Many of you who know me know this. I'm a very results and task-oriented person. But I'm beginning to see, just like many of you, I'm made in God's image. I have the capacity to bless. I have the ability and the gift to affirm and encourage. And when I withhold that, I withhold the grace of God for some of you. And you do the same. So take a minute right now. I asked you a few minutes ago to think of the Phoebes. Is there anybody that God is saying to you, you, they need affirmation right now? Who is God inviting you to see with the eyes of Christ right now? Uh, Fill them with hope. Bless them without condition. Just speak a practical word of encouragement. It could be writing a note. It could be saying eye to eye, I see this in you. I love it. Um, and bless without condition. That's, that's the invitation here, okay? So that's the second big thing. Here's the last thing that will bring us to communion. And it's literally just in verse 20, which we read. Uh, this whole teaching has been stuff we didn't read, but here you go. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's Paul's last word, or nearly. And what he's saying here, just to conclude, is this is not the end of the story. Wherever this is for you. They're facing persecution. They're a small group of Christ followers in a very large city. I don't know what this is for you right now. It could be a, a loss of hope, a sense of despair, a feeling of smallness, um, confusion. I don't know. But that's not the end. That's not the story God's writing. He's inviting them to catch a vision for the end of the story. The end of the story. Um, you know, I've been reading this novel called Lincoln and the Bardo, and it's about... Uh, Abraham Lincoln's, it's a fictional book, but uh, Abraham Lincoln's son, William, who died when he was young of, of, um, of typhoid, I think. And, and so it's a fictional story of, of between his death and then when he goes off to heaven, of this bardo is like a uh, Hindu sort of uh, purgatory. And so he, it's actually this weirdly written book. I'm actually not even recommending it, but I'm really loving it. Um, of interactions between like spirits and ghosts and then it's really fascinating. But I'm, I've always been very fascinated by Abraham Lincoln's relationship with his son, William. who was his favorite child, died early. Um, and in particular, uh, I came across the funeral homily for William Wallace Lincoln, uh, given by this guy named Phineas Gurley. You can look it up sometime. And he gives this homily. It's actually just the, this, the Lincoln family and him and a very private funeral. And he, and he says this to... Uh, Abraham and, and Mary Lincoln. Mary? Yeah. He says, what you need now, what we need now, uh, is, is sort of 
an awareness that we worship a God who knows the end from the beginning and does all things well. We worship a God who knows the end from the beginning and does all things well. In other words, what I think he was saying is this is not God's plan for William's life or your life, and it's not the end either. And God knows the end from the beginning, and he does things well. And so we live in a fallen world, and bad stuff happens. It just does. And yet, that's not God's plan or design. And and so Paul says here the same thing. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then he says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He's doing the same thing. He's not just pumping them up. He's not just signing off Paul. He's, He's saying, God knows the end from the beginning. This is not the end. Trust that he's in the midst of this, whatever this is for you. And know that God does all things well. As the psalmist says in in Psalm 46, and I love the message translation of this, so I'll finish with this. Jacob wrestling God fights for us. God of the angel armies protects us. Attention, pay attention. See the marvels of God. He plants flowers and trees all over the earth. He bans war from pole to pole. He breaks all the weapons of war across his knee. And then he says this, Psalm 46.10, step out of the traffic, take a long loving look at me, at your high God, above politics, which is a word I could, we could hear for today, above everything. This is what I think Paul's saying. May we rejoice that we're known in the midst of the dark. We're seen. May Christ who lived for us, died for us, rose to the right hand of the Father for us, may invade our lives with a sense of hope in our world, saturate our community, our city. And as, as Paul says in the message translation of this, may we enjoy the very best of Jesus because of that resting in God's hope. So that's the implication of this word for our mission. We are given a hope. And we're not at the end yet. Let's, uh, let's come to the table with that expectancy this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you that uh, though we come to the end of a service this morning, uh, we're nowhere near the end of the story you're writing in our lives and in this world. Um, there's so much more for us to, to know, to know about ourselves as you've created us. We have a life to live beyond these doors in which you're speaking to us uh, through your word, through the revelation of uh, the world around us and community. Thank you for this community, God, we, we get to worship with. Thank you for the rich variety of difference in this room. May we be filled with more gratitude for that this morning. And thank you that though we're at an inflection point in history where it feels almost hopeless and and dark at times. This is not the end of the story. You have so much more for us as your followers. Help us to see that this coming week and these days ahead. In Christ's name we we pray. Amen. (laughs)